This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, Venezuela's Supreme Court has the last word when it comes to that country's controversial presidential elections. And Edward Snowden may be in Russia for the time being, but his case is resonating in Latin America. We'll discuss what that means from Caracas to La Paz. But first, Kurt Devine is here with more on that Supreme Court decision and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuela's Supreme Court rejected an appeal by opposition leader Enrique Capriles to challenge this year's presidential election. The court ordered Capriles to pay a fine of about $1,700 for insulting governmental authorities. Capriles lost the election to current president Nicolas Maduro by less than one and a half percentage points in April. The opposition party maintains that the results were marred by fraud. Supreme Court Justice Gladys Gutierrez explains the court's rejection of the appeal. This decision is appealable under Article 97 of the Organic Law of the Supreme Court of Justice, but since the appeal was not submitted in the required time, the decision remains firm. Venezuelan authorities also ordered the arrest of one of Capriles' close advisors, Oscar Lopez, and seized computers and cell phones from the man's apartment. Capriles tweeted that there is a lack of justice in Venezuela. A review panel in Chile found a national census in 2012 to be so inaccurate that it recommended the government discard the data. Chilean President Sebastián Piñera publicly asked forgiveness for the census. He says the government will seek a second opinion on whether to discard the census or attempt to correct it. The political embarrassment of the census could affect Piñera's conservatives in the general election in November. A gas explosion killed 12 people and injured more than 60 in Rosario, Argentina's third largest city. Authorities believe a gas leak caused the blast, which blew off the front of a 10-story residential building and shattered windows several hundred meters away. Rescue teams have been searching for 11 people who could still be trapped beneath the debris. One man describes the search for his family member. We are seeking him because we are not sure he will be able to get out of the building. We do not lose hope. Authorities say a repairman and his assistant tried to fix the gas system the day of the blast. Authorities have detained them for questioning. The Argentine government declared two days of national mourning. Some experts say the explosion fueled more angry street protests against the administration of President Cristina Fernandez. Demonstrators turned to the streets to condemn unrestricted presidential power ahead of the congressional primaries this weekend. Colombian rebels killed an Ecuadorian lieutenant and injured a corporal in an unexpected firefight on the border. The fighting began when Ecuadorian soldiers encountered members of the Armed Revolutionary Forces of Colombia, or FARC, near a river separating the two nations. The soldiers ordered the rebels to surrender, but they refused. Five members of the FARC died in the combat. Ecuador called the Colombian government to strengthen its border security. Most zoos keep their animals locked in cages, but this is changing in Costa Rica. 
The government's environmental department says it will close two of Costa Rica's public zoos next year and release some of the animals into the wild. Others will be taken to animal rescue centers. Officials say the decision was made in an effort to protect wildlife. Environmentalists have long critiqued national zoo conditions, but some experts say many of the animals will not survive in the wild. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. As we heard earlier, Venezuela's Supreme Court rejected the electoral appeal of presidential challenger Enrique Capriles Radonsky to nullify last spring's election. Capriles lost those elections in April to Nicolas Maduro. Capriles wanted the election annulled, citing thousands of cases of voting irregularities. Besides rejecting the appeal from Capriles and fining him, the Supreme Court suggested prosecutors might consider criminal charges against the former candidate, who is the governor of Miranda State. We turn to Michael McCarthy of Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies for his analysis. McCarthy is the co-author of a recently released report on the Venezuelan elections by the Carter Center. He's also the co-author of an in-depth article on the elections in the latest edition of America's Quarterly. Here are excerpts from our interview conducted via Skype between Baltimore and our studios in Washington, D.C. The ruling itself uh, uh, was not too surprising. Uh, It came at a time when uh, two things are happening in Venezuela uh, that I think are important. On the one hand, uh, the country is a bit tired um, of uh, politics. Uh, This is part of, I think, what you could call a kind of natural cycle of social reality where um, you know, there was a great amount of commotion surrounding the very um, uh, fiercely contested and close elections in April. Um, and then for a month, there was a great amount of instability. Uh, for a month after that election, there was a great amount of instability about those, um, about those, about those elections. And then in the summertime, it, it's also summer in Venezuela, and August is actually vacation time there, uh, things begin to slow down in general. But at the same time, as the general population is uh, sort of turning away from politics, uh, this past week also uh, is an important um, uh, political period for the beginning of the campaign for municipal elections for mayors, which will be held on December 8th. This week, uh, candidates for the government and opposition uh, coalitions uh, formally registered before the National Electoral Council. So at, on the one hand, you have sort of the population already having kind of tuned out from, from this process, and at the same time, you have a lot of news about the next electoral cycle. So this decision in some ways seems to come at a time when uh, it's about closing a chapter and, quote, um, uh, turning the page to a new electoral battle. Uh, the decision itself rule was was based on procedural grounds. It ruled the complaint as inadmissible, uh, and uh, this is not a very very surprising um, not a very surprising decision or ruling by the Supreme Court. Um, but it does or uh, it will still disappoint many in the opposition who spent quite a bit of time uh, trying to uh, mount a legal case about the quality of the election to question it. Uh, Capriles, uh, opposition candidate or opposition leader, uh, Enrique Capriles, uh, has said that he will now try and take his case to international uh, fora, uh, and he apparently is going to attempt to do that by the end of August. Um, And other members of the opposition coalition, the the Democratic Unity Table, 
uh, roundtable have said they're going to do the same thing or going to support that effort by Kapilis. Um, but at the same time, it's also um, an opportunity for Kapilis and the opposition to uh, to move on to the next battle because although they question the uh, results in April um, in the voting conditions at the polling places um, and the transparency of the uh, uh, of the process for uh, counting some of the voting um, afterwards, uh, the opposition has publicly stated over and over again that uh, it believes elections are the only way to contest this government. So they've always been in a tricky position, um, at, you know, for these past few months of questioning an electoral system they consider to be unfair, and at the same time. Uh, calling on their base to still come out and vote and turn out in mass. Uh, and this decision, in some ways, gives Caprilis, to a certain extent, a way to say, look, I tried my best through the you know institutional channels that are available to me here in the country. I'm going to also try internationally. But at the same time, it's a way to sort of move on uh, for the opposition in that way. This international strategy is not exactly new. Governor Caprilis uh, has been mounting that with his meetings in Colombia with the president of Colombia and, and talking to folks in the international realm about what he feels were stolen elections in the, in the spring. Um, your report and your writing is critical of, of the opposition and of Governor Caprilis and in that you're saying that often his, his approach to this has been inconsistent and his message and critique about the elections has, has also not, not, not always been either accurate or, or consistent. Am I wrong in that analysis of what you've written? No, I, I think that's I think that's fair to say. We've been we've been a bit concerned by the change in the tone of Governor Kapilis's um, message and communication about the elections because on the night of April fourteenth, the night of the election, he said he would not recognize the results until every vote was counted, which seemed in the context of um, you know, in the in the sort of heat of the moment, to be a reasonable um, condition to place on the election, in the sense that it was, you know, there there were different quick counts that had given uh, Caprilis the victory, but they were within the margin of error. The results were very close. A lot of things happened at the end, the end of the day with mobilization. So there seemed to be questions that needed to be answered, and it seemed to make sense to a certain extent to wait for those questions to be cleared up to. Uh, to, to sort of then recognize the results. But over time, Kapilis's message changed dramatically from saying that he would recognize the vote um, results after all those questions were cleared up to then saying that Maduro had stolen the elections and then stolen victory from me. Um, those are two different, you know, slight variations on the same basic message, which is fraud. In the report, you were also critical of Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro. Can you elaborate on what those criticisms were? Yeah, our, our, our report, it, the, the criticism centers on the issue of uh, areas for strengthening the quality of the electoral system in Venezuela. Um, as a, I was mentioning, the, the vote itself we believe to be a very uh, good system for voting, but it really has to do with the context and the conditions of competition that need to be addressed. Um, that's the biggest problem. Uh, and then there are some disputed issues about whether or not the voting day conditions uh, provide the right environment for 
uh, the vote to take place um, with with sufficient integrity so that the full uh, will of the people is reflected and that there's no process of coercion in terms of voting and things like that. Your and we report, have nine, nine recommendations along those lines that are listed on the, the Carter Center website. Um, and in the criticism that would then have to do with the Maduro government is that it, we believe it to be in the interest of the Maduro government to promote um, a debate, a public debate about electoral reform. Uh, it will only strengthen the legitimacy of the Maduro government um, if the electoral system is seen domestically and internationally as, uh, as, as, as a more legitimate one. Uh, so we think it's in the interest of the Maduro government to promote that debate about electoral reform. And we think that there are, you know, serious issues and that there can be differences of, of opinion, but the, the system requires that debate in order for it to be strengthened. Your writings mentioned that there were not only media inequities, so that uh, President Maduro was given a lot more airtime and a lot more time and access to the media, but but also that there was intimidation on, on the part of the government? Um, well, we, we suggest that at the polling places, and our, our information has, it comes from national observer groups that are accredited with the National Electoral Council of Venezuela. It's important to note uh, part of the restructuring of the uh, CNE, that's the Electoral Council's relationship with observer groups, is that they've gone for what's called, quote, a national stakeholder model of electoral observation, and so they in, invite national observer groups, NGOs essentially, to participate as observers of the process. Those reports indicated that there was exam, there were instances of uh, coercion uh, in terms of who voters should select uh, once they were inside polling places. However, it's also important to point out that while the majority. Uh, of the problems were associated with pro-Maduro uh, personnel. There were also a significant number uh, of pro-Caprilis personnel involved in these, uh, quote, voting infractions or, or norm infractions as well. The CNE, the, the electoral body that reviews <laughs> the elections, um, in your writings you've criticized them for a lack of transparency um, during this process, and I guess in the post-election period, too, uh, compared to other elections, why do you think that this has happened, this lack of transparency? Well, uh, they've been very transparent on some issues, but not on everything. It's important to make that distinction. Um, the auditing, uh, the, the, the quick audit of the, uh, of the voting machines has been a very, very transparent and public process. But that at least from the perspective of the opposition, was never the number one issue. For the opposition, the number one issue is an audit of the uh, thumbprint machines that capture voter identity before they are uh, permitted to go vote in polling places. And the opposition has wanted to get more information about the audit of the thumbprint process out of um, a concern or driven by a concern that there may have been people who usurped others' identities and voted more than once. Uh, and that process uh, has not been as transparent um, as the technical audit of the voting machines in terms of whether or not votes cast were in fact printed out by the machines as those votes cast. And, and um, we should be clear here yeah. that this audit that we're referring to, and there was mm -hmm. an audit post-election, that this is not a vote-by-vote -vote recount. 
It's different. That's right. It's not a vote by vote re- recount. It's a it's an audit of this of the technological platform to see whether or not it works, and that happens uh, automatically. And fi- for fifty three percent of the voting machines uh, in the twenty in about the twenty four to forty eight hours um, uh, after the election, and those vote polling places that fifty three percent is selected randomly um, on the day of the election by the Electoral Council. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court put to rest this week, any idea that there would be some sort of recount vote by vote. Yeah, well, the the opposition had submitted uh, two, um, there were a number of different complaints submitted to the Supreme Court. Some were sort of free agent opposition people, and then others were directly affiliated with the Caprilis campaign. And the two ones, two main ones from the Caprillas campaign, one of them called for annulling the entire election and another one just deeming it overall fraudulent. Thank you, Michael McCarthy of Johns Hopkins University, the co-author of the new Carter Center Report and America's Quarterly article on the Venezuelan elections. Join us via Skype. Thank you, Rick. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Usually Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue is featured on this program with a commentary. But from time to time, we ask him for his in-depth analysis, too. This week, we talked to him about the impact of the case of Edward Snowden. Snowden, you may recall, is the former U.S. government contractor who revealed the vast domestic spying program of the National Security Agency, the NSA. This week, President Barack Obama canceled his summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin over this case, as the Russians have given Snowden temporary asylum. But various countries in Latin America have offered Snowden permanent asylum if he could manage to travel to one of them. We asked Hakem for his thoughts. Here are excerpts from our conversation. We want to talk about this uh, soap opera that's been running all summer, the the Snowden affair. Edward Snowden, the the National Security Agency leaker. There's good reasons why the U.S. has been so upset about uh, not getting him back, uh, presumably because he does... Uh, have or control uh, a lot of information that the U.S. Uh, doesn't want any more exposure of. Uh, it's not clear to me. Uh, I think the Latin Americans may at this point uh, be just as happy to step away from it. Well, it seems like he has a, a limited time in Russia. He has a year uh, to figure out what, what will happen. And I guess the Putin government also has a year. But the question is, Three governments stepped up, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Nicaragua, all offered asylum at one point or another during this, um, this saga. And, and at one point, even Ecuador flirted with that. Uh, why, in your opinion, did these governments want to take him in? Well, uh, let me say first, uh, Nicaragua's offer was so hedged that it was hardly an offer. I really think there were two countries... Uh, Uh, Venezuela and Bolivia. Uh, And I think neither of them, and probably not Nicaragua, even with its hedged offer, uh, would have done it if uh, the plane bringing uh, Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, back from the Soviet Union 
for a meeting uh, uh, had not been grounded. Uh, it was grounded because it was not given air clearance to travel through the, the airspace of, uh, of, of several countries of Europe, and it had to come down to uh, refuel. Uh, and people was, thought Snowden was on the plane. Well, people thought Snowden was on the plane, and uh, this was, of course, considered a, a deep insult to the president of Bolivia to see his plane uh, uh, brought down like that. And uh, the fact is that it's uh, hard for anyone to identify a previous incident that uh, a president's plane that was clearly a president's plane uh, was uh, grounded in a similar fashion. Most uh, see the hand of the U.S. behind this. Uh, European countries, uh, which uh, which denied the airspace, have all apologized now uh, to the Bolivians. Um, but I think without that incident, without that insult, without that uh, sort of act that... Uh, the Latin Americans might have stayed a little further distant from this. And when the uh, Bolivian plane was grounded, everybody in Latin America, all the Latin America, showed enormous solidarity. Uh, and the Bolivians themselves, of course, uh, were the most injured. But the Venezuelans, I think, couldn't avoid the temptation, couldn't resist the temptation uh, to take this opportunity to poke another finger in, in uh, the U.S. eye. Uh, their president is still struggling to uh, uh, establish his authority in Venezuela. He'd like to have a broader voice in Latin America. And again, uh, when one can uh, uh, challenge the United States in this way, it sort of gives greater credibility in, in some circles. And so this is why um, this was a, a, a matter of establishing credibility um, in Latin America? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, one has to go beyond the pro. I think this was an opportunity the president of Venezuela saw to establish his credentials as an anti-U.S. leader, as a leader who wasn't going to let the U.S. get away with anything, who was going to defend the uh, his Latin American partners, his Latin American allies, and uh, I say the temptation was just too great, uh, uh, and and he grabbed it, despite the fact that Venezuela had, uh, in fact, initiated an effort to uh, try and uh, reduce tensions with the United States not uh, two weeks before uh, when they asked for a meeting with, uh, with uh, between their foreign minister and uh, uh, John Kerry, uh, which they got, and things did look like they might uh, go on to a smoother path. But, of course, this sort of interrupted and, and, and uh, made that uh, possibility more remote. So is this rapprochement that we saw at the Organization of American States meetings in Guatemala with Secretary of State Kerry. Is that dead now? Well, dead is always a, a, a strong word. Uh, no, I don't think it's dead. I think it's been badly uh, injured. I think it's more difficult now. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, it's, I think, in the interests of both the United States and of Venezuela uh, to move forward on this. Venezuela 
initiated it. The U.S. responded uh, uh, with some degree of uh, interest and, and even enthusiasm, and uh, uh, it's gone nowhere so far. But uh, I think that uh, either both sides show a degree of pragmatism. We might still be able to make some progress. We have in recent weeks seen the Colombians and the Venezuelans meet and have a bit of their own detente. So does that show that maybe there is some light to that pragmatism? Well, uh, like I say, you know, this is was the style of Hugo Chavez to uh, go to the edge and then pull back to sort of uh, launch a challenge and then uh, sort of uh, apologize. And uh, I think Maduro may have learned something from that. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, his own situation in Venezuela is becoming, uh, well, is difficult. Uh, it might actually, he may have stabilized things a bit now. But the uh, politics and even worse, the economic situation uh, is going to make his government, uh, uh, it's going to weaken his government. Ecuador continues to to give refuge to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks and in their London embassy. At one point, Ecuador was in the forefront of, of wanting to give Edward Snowden um, some place to stay. And uh, we know that Vice President Joe Biden got on the phone and and then the president, Rafael Correa, changed his mind after that phone call. It Was it um, U.S. economic pressure that made that change, do you think? First, uh uh, Rafael Correa is uh, not always uh, consistent, and uh, but I do think he was very eager. He has been eager to uh, restore uh, some of the economic uh, benefits of uh, uh, general tariff preferences that the U.S. had extended to Ecuador. Uh, he himself then renounced those uh, preferences. Why? Because he said he didn't want them to interfere with his decision about uh, uh, asylum for Snowden. And uh, on the whole, that was a very uh, good, clever, tactical move by him because he wasn't going to get the preferences given the opposition within Congress. I think Ecuador, among the various countries, wants to establish better relations with the U.S. And at the same time, uh, Rafael Correa is, uh, has entertained, certainly, and uh, uh, at times uh, conveyed the, his, his own uh, ambitions to somehow lead this uh, group of anti-U.S. countries in Latin America that really the uh, Maduro, the president of Venezuela, is really not up to the task. Uh, he's, no, uh, he's not going to take over uh, as, the, as a Latin American leader from Hugo Chavez. Uh, Rafael Correa is probably the most dynamic of the group. Uh, so, I mean, there's uh, this split. Uh, he wants uh, the uh, benefits of a good economic relationship, a good political relationship. A good political relationship has economic consequences for most countries. Countries with sour uh, relations with the U.S. find themselves paying higher prices to borrow money on international markets, find them more difficult to find lenders, etc. 
Uh, so, you know, I think somebody like Correa, who uh, earned a Ph.D. at a U.S. university, uh, uh, also bears a grudge. His father was uh, arrested in the United States for drug transport, uh, kept in jail for some time. Uh, it's not always clear, but he's certainly motivated by a pragmatic bent on the economic side, coupled with a desire for some kind of leadership role in Latin America, coupled with his own inner uh, demons about the United States. Thank you, Peter Hakem, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, Hente Flow, and Musica Q. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash latinpulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, production assistant Alexia Campbell, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>